What's the truth about Native American populations and Native American reservations in the United States? Why are there rates of crime, of poverty, of abuse, of alcoholism so much higher than the general population? What policies, what court decisions are driving this? And is there anything that we can do to help? Today, I am talking to author Naomi Riley. She wrote a book called The New Trail of Tears. It is an absolutely fascinating, heartbreaking, but fascinating conversation about the Native American population and how progressive policy has driven these populations into destitution and how desperately things need to change. And we can be a part of that change. So we're going to be talking about that today with Naomi. And this episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. You can go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. But before we get into it, I do want to say one more time that uh, we have got we've got new merch. We've got Christmas merch out for you. And we've got a Black Friday deal for you. 30% off. And you can use promo code Black Friday at checkout. We'll put the link in the description of this episode. It's really, really like a sweet, beautiful design on a crew neck sweatshirt. And so you're absolutely going to love it. I can't wait to rock mine and know that you're going to like yours as well. All right. Without further ado, here is our friend Naomi. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us again. Um, last time we talked about the foster care system. Such an interesting episode. I love when people uncover kind of the talking points and reveal what's really going on in a system. And you do that really well. And a few years ago, a few years ago, before your foster care book and about the adoption system, you did the same thing with our treatment of Native Americans and what's really going on there. So tell us about the book that you wrote a few years ago and why you wrote it. Sure. So the book was called The New Trail of Tears, uh, How Washington is Destroying American Indians. And for a long time, I had been reading the stories that I think a lot of Americans read about just the tragedies of what's going on on Indian reservations and Indian territories, um, about the extreme poverty that exists in these places, about, um, you know, some of the abuse that goes on, the levels of alcoholism and substance use. And I really kind of wondered what what was behind that. Um, you know, I think the the narrative out there is that, you know, we took the land from these people and we are not giving them enough in return. Mm. Um, and so I, you know, eventually managed to sort of get some um, some funding to do some traveling. I went to a bunch of different reservations all over the country, South Dakota and Montana and upstate New York and um, I did a lot of interviews and a lot of research, and I came away with a much different impression about what are the things that are ailing American Indians. Um, and so I, I, in the book, sort of divided them into three categories. I think the first and most important is kind of understanding the economic situation on reservations. So, you know, most people don't understand really what a reservation is. It means that the land is held in trust by the U.S. government for American Indians. Now, the only other people that we hold things in trust for 
are children or people who are mentally incompetent. So mm-hmm. just sort of the infantilization that goes on of American Indians by the fact that we have these reservations, I think is important to understand. And while I think many on the left and many Americans generally have embraced the idea of reservations as a way of protecting uh, Native American communities, unfortunately, they're actually a way of keeping them in poverty. What so they, they don't about, own they don't own the land. Exactly, the U.S. government exactly. owns the land. Mm-hmm. Got it. They don't have any property rights, which, as you and I know, is so important to economic prosperity. So um, not only do they not own the land, it means that, you know, the same way you and I might get a mortgage uh, from a bank, they can't get regular mortgages uh, to build a home, for instance, because they don't own the underlying land. So there's no collateral. Um, Similarly, if they wanted to open a small business, a lot of Americans use the land that they have or their house um, in order to take out a second mortgage or home equity loan in order to open a small business. Again, because they don't own the land, they can't do that. Um, And so those lack of that lack of property rights really makes those communities much more like a kind of third world socialist country than Mm. a part of the United States. Um, And that has ripple effects, which we can talk about on everything from education um, to the way families operate, to the unemployment rate. Um, it, it really does change the entire structure of the society. Yeah. Before we get into some of those consequences, maybe that this is a dumb question, but why don't they, if they can't really own the property on these reservations and they can't gain equity the way you or I could, why don't they just move? Why do Native Americans stay on these reservations? So there are about 2 million American Indians in this country, um, and about half of them live on reservations and about half of them don't. Um, There's nothing ever stopping them from leaving. Uh, They are American citizens. They are free to live anywhere in this country, free to move anywhere in this country, just like you or I could. Um, Unfortunately, what happens is because there is so much in the way of kind of government subsidies and a kind of cycle of dependency and poverty, uh, a lot of people do end up staying. Um, you know, they are close to family there um, and they feel like, you know, that's that's sort of what they know. And so, you know, a lot of Americans, um, you know, don't necessarily leave the place that they're living, even if it's, you know, an inner city or a dangerous neighborhood, because that's what they know and that's what they're used to. But um, but the cycle of kind of government dependency also sort of keeps them in this particular place, um, you know, again, not legally, but sort of culturally. And I think that has the effect of, of continuing the cycle. And unfortunately, what happens sometimes also is that you get a little bit of a brain drain. So the people who are most competent and most ambitious and most interested in escaping the cycle actually leave. And then the remaining people there are caught even more in the cycle because there's no one there to kind of push them out of it. Right. Which is the the same problem with a lot of global migration as well. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Let's talk about some of the ripple effects, some of the repercussions of this. You've talked about the um, the alcoholism and the abuse and the crime that goes on there really at a disproportionate rate compared to the rest of the population off of these reservations. Why does that happen? So um, just to sort of take it, you know, to take it from the economic part into the sort of cultural part. So one thing to understand is why education is so terrible on these reservations. Um, So because there are so few jobs, because there's no, you know, real private sector economy, the only real jobs are jobs that are government provided, you know, government subsidies and, and, and public school teaching, like teaching at a tribal school um, or at a BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs school is actually one of the few real jobs on the reservations. But those 
those jobs are not given often based on competence or based on whether you're a good teacher. They're given based on whether you happen to have a relative who is on the tribal council. There's an enormous mm. amount of nepotism that occurs there. And the schools are absolutely terrible. The outcomes for kids are, again, you know, worse than what you imagine in the, the worst inner city public schools in, in America. Because there's um, just and, no incentive and there's no outside accountability. Are they are absolutely. the schools there? Are they different? Are they apart from our public education system in the U.S.? Are they kind of their own entity? So there are different um, there are different kinds of schools that American Indians can attend. So about 10 percent of the schools are federally run. They're called Bureau of Indian Affairs schools. Those are some of the absolute worst of public schools. They're absolutely falling down. Um, and we spend uh, many times the amount per student on those schools that we do on a typical American public school. Um, they The Bureau of Indian Education, I think, has something like 26 different leaders in 24 years um, because and so many of those people were pushed out because of corruption and incompetence. Um, And so that's one type of school. Another type of school. So it's not sorry to interrupt, but just so people know, because we hear this a lot for our public schools, that it's lack of funding, it's lack of funding. That's what Democrats seem to always say. And yet that's not even true of our public education off of these reservations. I mean, we spend a ton of money, have increased our spending that unfortunately has just not gone to the students and has gone to bureaucratic bloat and corruption in a lot of cases. So you're saying that that is also true of these federally run reservation Mm -hmm. schools, but even worse, because maybe I don't know. I, I don't know why. I don't even know why it would be worse. Well, um, to begin with, there's almost no competition. Um, so mm-hmm. there are almost no private schools around. A couple of the reservations that I visited, like uh, Pine Ridge um, and one of the reservations in Montana, um, do have Catholic schools that are located on or near the reservation. Um, they're small. They are often uh, criticized incredibly by the council by the tribal councils, but frankly, those are the only schools that are actually giving a real education, um, but they're they're deemed too white, um, and a lot of parents don't want to send their kids there because they don't feel like they're, they're authentically Indian enough, or that's what they've been told by their tribal leaders. Um, so there's no competition. Also, a lot of the states that have the largest American Indian populations don't um, have charter schools allowed in their states. Um, so that, as we know, has provided competition and has improved public schooling in places like, you know, New York City or Los Angeles, you know, where there has been at least some competition that is often not allowed uh, near reservations. So the combination of those things has made, um, you know, the education just deplorable. And what you get is a situation where, you know, again, you can't escape um, uh, because you don't have the credentials, the competence in order to get out. Um, and that that, in you know, the, the economics is in part feeding the cultural problems and the cultural problems are feeding some of the economic problems. So just as again, just as you have in in different inner city areas and in very poor rural populations, um, you have a high rate of unwed motherhood. Uh, you have a lot of broken families. Um, You have a great deal of crime and violence, uh, substance abuse is through the roof, Um, sexual abuse of uh, both women, the the rates of sexual assault by women, uh, of women, and the rates of sexual abuse of young children are extraordinarily high. Um, So all of these things together, and and that that has to do with family structure, it has to do with um, the history of the way uh, these families have, have evolved, and in some cases it has to do with how they've been treated by outsiders. But the way that these things have been perpetuated now is is almost entirely by um, American Indians themselves. 
Um, 75% of the people who work for the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington are themselves Indians. So there is a complaint, you know, oh, the, the white people are treating us badly. You know, these are, you know, tribal councils and the Bureau of Indian Affairs are run by American Indians, um, but they're perpetuating a lot of these harms on their own people. Okay, y'all have probably heard of Operation Christmas Child. If you grew up going to church, you probably filled one of those shoe boxes and you sent them back to Samaritan's Purse and then they shipped them to a child somewhere around the world. Well, that is still going on. They are bringing joy to millions of children in impoverished countries around the world every year because of the generosity of Christians in the United States and elsewhere filling up these little shoe boxes full of different kinds of games or toys or necessities like a toothbrush or uh, like socks and clothes. And it just is so amazing. Every time I see a video of one of these kids opening up a shoebox and you really just do see the love and the joy of Christ in their faces. And we get to be a part of that in a really simple way. So go to SamaritansPurse.org slash OCC. That stands for Operation Christmas Child. You can learn more about it, how you fill a box, how you can send a box. You can fill a box online. So just say what you want to fill and they'll put it in the shoebox and then they'll ship it off for you. It's really, really easy to do. And you can just make a child's not just day, but year. I mean, so many of them have never gotten a gift before and uh, we get to contribute to that, which is amazing. So go to SamaritansPurse.org slash OCC to learn more. That's SamaritansPurse.org slash OCC. I I think if I'm correct, these Native American populations tend to vote for the party that is guaranteeing kind of more government interference and protection and welfare, correct? Absolutely. And, and, and so you see this as, again, a, an interesting parallel with, you know, a lot of the civil right, quote unquote, civil rights leaders who are in America today. You know, they're, they're telling, you know, for instance, African-American population, you know, vote for us and we will, you know, give you more money and more government benefits. And similarly, among American Indians, you have these leaders who claim to speak for the population. But, you know, as I found, there were lots of people on these reservations who really questioned these ideas but there wasn't a lot of a political alternative there. Um, and, and so all these leaders who say, you know, we'll bring home the bacon and that's what's the most important thing. Um, you know, they promise year after year that, you know, all this all this reservation needs is more money and that problem will be fixed. And, you know, we pour at billions upon billions of dollars into these reservations and you don't see anything improving. Um, you know, it's really interesting. One of the places I went to was the Seneca Territory, which is in upstate New York. Um, so they have sort of some, uh, I guess, what you might call private industry in that they have a large casino there. Now, most Indian casinos don't make much money. And a lot of people have said to me, like, oh, why don't they just use their casino money to succeed? But you know, if you open a casino in the middle of South Dakota, no one's there, no one's going to come. So it's not really very helpful. But the one in upstate New York has been very successful. And over the course of 10 years, um, Seneca has earned about a billion dollars um, on their casino. What's interesting is if you go, um, you know, to the territory, what you find is they're still living in a lot of poverty. And what has happened is that money, the proceeds from the casinos just get distributed the same way welfare checks get distributed. Um, you know, when I was there, I think the number was when you turn 21, they'll give you a check for $25,000 just, you know, for being a member of the tribe. 
And, um, you know, and you can imagine what a 20, 20, what a 21 year old does when you just hand them that kind yeah. of money, they blow it. And, and so it doesn't ever improve the economic situation on the reservation. It's just like money falling from the sky. My goodness, I have so many questions in that. Okay, let's see. I, I guess my so first, I. Uh, yes, my first question is, and I'm not sure how much you talk about this, um, how much you talk about this or have written about this, but can you talk a little bit about the history of how these reservations, how Native Americans came to depend on the gambling industry, like? Where where does that where does that go back? Why is it that Native Americans run so many of these casinos? So what's 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 happened is that you have had these um, court rulings that have allowed American Indians to get into certain industries that um, states may have deemed illegal, and so they've kind of in, in various ways they they would corner the market on industries. Um, they're often t- they often tend to be industries that you or I would not want in our backyard. So there was a time where they were able to sell cigarettes tax free or sell liquor tax free, um, or they were able to open these casinos when other people in the state could not. Is this um, just like now, a form of reparations, basically? Well, it, it I mean it effectively has turned into that, but it started off as just kind of these legal loopholes that technically these were sort of sovereign territories in some ways. And so the state laws did not apply to them in the same way that they would apply to other residents of the state. And now they're actually getting into the marijuana business. In the, yes, in the I've, I've so heard it, a little bit about that. Yeah. So again, you know, industries that you or I do not want in our neighborhood and and they are, you know, really grasping and, and, and holding on to these, you know, because they are providing such an enormous flow of money, but they're not industries that help a community. Um, and often they encourage not only bad behavior on the part of the residents of the community. I mean, a lot of the people who frequent the casinos are Indians themselves. Um, but also they're bringing in even a kind of worse element of, you know, people, oh, they're the people who want to come buy pot from us. Like that's that's not what you want to encourage coming to your neighborhood. Yeah. So when we hear from left-wing activists, and gosh, I mean, everything that you say, it parallels so much, kind of like you were talking about the inner city communities, Black Lives Matter advocacy. It's They're so similar because we also hear, so we hear from BLM that more money needs to be poured into these communities and all of that disparities are evidence of racism. And then we also hear that when it comes to the Native American population, that there needs to be more. There have been no reparations paid. Um, there's been no justice exacted for these people. And we hear like this phrase land back they need to get their land back so what exactly are these activists talking about like what do the left-wing activists say that native americans deserve that in their mind would make things better um well more money to begin with but they also talk about sovereignty in this particular Mm. way um that i think doesn't make a lot of sense um, in the modern context. I mean, you know, I I would go to some of these reservations and and they would say, well, we want to be treated like um, they had a a one on one reservation. They had a team that had competed in like a worldwide lacrosse tournament. And they were like, well, you know, we were just treated like another country and we were just like France. 
and said, well, legally, that's not what you are. No one thinks that American Indian reservations are like a separate country um, because American Indians are American citizens. And that's something that's important to remember, both in terms of how we treat the leadership of these uh, of these reservations, but also in terms of how we ensure the protections for their citizens. Like if if there is all this crime and violence and substance abuse and child abuse going on on these reservations, you know, they these American citizens are owed the same protections that you or I are. Yeah. And we can't pretend that they're like France and that's their problem. Right. But they're not. They're not offered the same protections. Women and children are not or even men. Anyone who is really a victim of a crime there is not afforded the same protections. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, how did that happen and what does that look like? Well, just to sort of give you one story, um, I went to the Pine Ridge Reservation, for instance, in South South Dakota, which is basically the poorest county in the United States. Um, and I went to visit a school there, and the principal of the school was talking to me about how on one weekend a month, um, the school has uh, what they call a lock-in. But she sort of made it sound like it was this sort of cultural festival. The kids stay for the weekend. It's very exciting. They celebrate all their traditions. And... And I said, um, you know, like, tell me more. Why Why do the kids have to stay over for the whole weekend? And she explained that they keep them there because that is the weekend that their parents receive their checks from the government and often get drunk and abuse their children. Wow. So I just, you know, I, I tell that story <sighs> because I think people don't understand when I'm talking about the level of abuse that's going on and how deeply connected it is to the cycle of dependency um, from the government and the substance abuse that's going on there. Um, and we are not, you know, there is not enough law enforcement on these reservations. There's often jurisdictional confusion about who is in charge. I mean, I remember sitting down with um, with three guys who, uh, you know, were involved in the education system on Indian territories. And I asked one of them, like, I asked all three of them, who would you report it to if you thought a child was being abused? And one person said he would report to the tribal authorities. One person said he'd report to the state authorities. And one person said he'd report to the federal authorities. So there's so much confusion about who is in charge that it leads to a kind of Wild West situation where, you know, the most vulnerable people are not getting protected. All right. I'm so excited to tell you guys about Range Leather. I love this company and I love the products that they make. Most leather purses and bags that you're buying at the store are poorly made overseas. They wear out over time. And that is why the owners of Range Leather started their company, Kyle and Bailey. They're fans of the show. So shout out to them for that. They wanted to make leather goods that would last forever. And they really do. They're amazing and they're super cute. I love wearing their earrings. You've probably seen me wear them, the black and the brown kind of like rainbow shaped earrings. They also have bags and belts and wallets. These make for great high quality gifts that will last forever. They're handcrafted in Laramie, Wyoming. And so you're supporting an American company. Also, you're supporting people with our values. And that's what we're trying to do, right? And you can get a discount if you go to rangeleather.com and use coupon code Allie, you get 15% off your first order. Go to rangeleather.com, use coupon code Allie for 15% off your first order, rangeleather.com, code Allie. One thing that was brought to my attention a few months ago um, by Governor Stitt from Oklahoma was the McGirt decision by the Supreme Court in July of 2020, 5-4 
uh, ruling that basically said a, a large chunk of eastern Oklahoma remains an American Indian reservation. And the reason um, why this went to the Supreme Court. So in 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the conviction of child rapist Jim C. McGirt on the grounds that the Creek Nation's reservation was never disestablished for criminal jurisdiction. State courts no longer have the authority to prosecute crimes committed by or against Oklahomans who are also tribal members. Now, until the governor talked to me about this, I had no idea that this was the case. And you might have heard in the news recently, um, there was a debate, a gubernatorial debate when the governor was campaigning, um, where his opponent said, you know, actually, Oklahoma's crime is even higher than New York's crime um, per capita, which is not necessarily true based on FBI reporting and things like that. But what a lot of people don't realize is that one of the reasons why Oklahoma's crime rate is so high is because such a large chunk is reservation Native American territory, and they are able to commit these crimes with near impunity, correct? That is absolutely true. The crime rates on the reservations are are just... They're mind-boggling. And the McGirt decision is just, it's outrageous. I mean, the idea that, um, you know, we want a large number of non-natives to be under the jurisdiction of, uh, you know, of, a, of an Indian territory and that we can't prosecute natives for crimes, um, especially these very serious crimes, um, is is crazy. And I have talked to a number of of women who are sort of activists on these reservations who are deeply concerned about what this is going to mean for prosecuting sexual assaults, um, for prosecuting child abuse, because what they have seen is the corruption that often happens in the tribal courts. Um, up there Again, the nepotism is there to a large extent, but it's not just that. It's also that the, you know, the, the, the punishment for serious crimes is often, you know, sort of what they would call culturally appropriate, you know, that you're um, that you're asked to, uh, you know, to to do things that that don't involve jail time, um, that are supposedly, you know, going to put you more in touch with your tribal traditions. Um, but but again, American citizens, American laws, American protections. That's what we are losing sight of. Um, and the most vulnerable Indians are the ones who are suffering as a result of our desire to be somehow more politically correct and sensitive um, about the needs of these communities. And what do you say to those who say, OK, yes, all of these are problems, the abuse, the alcoholism, the crime, but all of these are just inherited from the oppression that was inflicted on them by the United States. The reason why they've never been able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps is because, you know, we conquered and took their land. I mean, I have my own thinking in response to that. But what do you say? Because I'm sure you're kind of confronted with that accusation. Yeah. I mean, I don't really believe in historical trauma. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at groups in this country, around the world, you know, it, it, it what what is traumatic is what happens to you as an individual. And so the idea that you know, we would look to, you know, something that happened to your family three generations ago to explain some of the, the behavior, some of the dysfunction that is going on in your life today, I think, is is a cop out. And I don't just mean it's a cop out in the sense of you should take responsibility. I'm saying we're not looking at the more proximate causes right. of the dysfunction. You know, there was a story I remember uh, on NPR when I was around the time I was writing a book um, that was talking about some of the drug smuggling 
that was going on uh, across some of the reservations close to the Mexican border. Um, and and so it, the story was ostensibly about some of the high crime rates and abuse rates. Um, and, and the first explanation they had was historical trauma. But later in the story, you find out about all this drug smuggling that's going on on these reservations. You say, well, you know, maybe it's the substance abuse. Maybe it's the high crime rates. Maybe it has nothing to do with the fact that your grandfather, you know, was forced to go to a boarding school, uh, you know, by by the American government. I mean, I, I think that the way that that oppression, the, the way that that dysfunction does get passed on sometimes is through child abuse. I mean, I, you yeah. know, if if you have been abused as a child, you know, it's not unlikely that your parent was abused as a child and their parent was abused as a child. But then the answer is, you know, how do we stop that? I mean, one thing we need to do is by prosecuting it and ensuring that people who are, you know, committing these horrific crimes against women and children, you know, need to be taken away and put in jail or rehabilitated in some way. Not that we ignore it because we're trying to be sensitive and we just say, well, you know, you don't know what happened to them 100 years ago. Yeah, it's I mean, it's, again, just so similar to the social and racial justice narrative that we hear outside of these reservations that in order to create equal outcomes when it comes to like incarceration populations, we have to simply not jail people of certain races or not arrest them. And we think that that is going to create equality of outcomes. But in the case of the black population, you're just creating more black victims because intraracial violence is the most you know, likely kind of violence. And it seems to be the same in the Native American population. You're not protecting them from compounded trauma or whatever the left wants to say that it is. You are just creating more victims. It's a giant virtue signal, like what all of social justice is. It's a way to throw money at the problem and then to say that, you know, you're fighting for the rights of these people when really... You're not. You're hurting them. Um, yeah, the perfect. I wanted to say the perfect example of this. You know, the Supreme Court last week heard a case about the Indian Child Welfare Act, um, which is really just should outrage all Americans. I mean, so the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed in the 1970s. It was specifically to apparently address, you know, this historical trauma. Um, but the result is that today, you know, if a child who is of Indian descent is removed from their home because they have been abused or severely neglected, um, we have a, a standard in court that is different for, you know, proving that abuse than we have for white children or black children or Asian or Hispanic it's children. It's higher. It's we, harder to it prove. It is higher, yes. We we leave these children in unsafe homes longer because of our desire to be sensitive. And we make it almost impossible for them to be adopted because the tribes get to say, if that child has a drop of Indian blood in them, the tribes can say, no, 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 we want them to be with an Indian family. And so if there's no Indian family, we will leave that child in foster care indefinitely because, again, oh, we're being sensitive to their historical trauma. What about the trauma that child is experiencing right. today on a personal level? Why are we concerned yeah. about what happened to that child's great grandfather and not what is being perpetrated against him or her today? Yeah, it's exactly what you said a couple minutes ago. You are focusing on these intangible and far off potential but unlikely causes of trauma for today. Uh, and then ignoring the proximate cause of trauma and the very tangible cause of trauma. And it's it's really hard for me to understand what the motivation is behind that. I think we both understand kind of how left-wing social justice ideology works and that's that effect on many kinds of communities in the United States. 
But it's still hard for me to understand how a human could see, okay, this child is being abused. It is it is more important that this child stays in foster care and with a potentially abusive or negligent tribal family than it would be for them to, you know, be adopted by maybe a white family who actually loves them. I just don't under I don't understand what's behind that. It's really difficult for me to grasp. I know. I mean, I think there are very powerful special interests at work here. I mean, the tribes were the one who were ones who were in court arguing for the Indian Child Welfare Act this week. And they were really sort of, you know, they're, they're the ones who you think would be protecting, you know, their own most vulnerable children, but they're not. And it's um, it is hard to understand. But you have to understand, like all sorts of other um, organizations, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, actually signed amicus briefs to side with the tribes, saying, again, we should leave children in abusive homes longer and we should make it harder for these kids to be adopted. The the pediatricians of America. So, you know, it's hard to you know, it's 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 hard to understand on the one hand why ordinary Americans would think this law is a good idea. But a lot of Americans think, oh, well, pediatricians think it's OK. So why not? Of course, but what is, this is their the same interest? Organization. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, that's what that's what I don't know. Like, what is their interest? But I guess, you know, we ask the same questions about. Well, what is their interest in pushing puberty blockers? What is their interest in pushing mask mandates without any data? I guess it's just, you know, institutional capture that's happened to a lot of institutions in America. Political virtue signaling. Absolutely. That's what it has in common. You want to know why the AAP wants masking? You want to know why the AAP wants puberty blockers? You want to know why the AAP wants ICWA? It's all because they have been captured by political interests. They are willing to sell their name, um, basically, in in order to participate in these cases. And and the the victims are the children. Yeah. But we're told to trust the science. And if we don't trust them, then we're seen as some kind of conspiracy theorist. All right, let me tell you about Healthy Cell. It is a new generation of dietary supplements. If you are one of the millions of Americans that's taking just like the normal tablets and capsules for your multivitamin, you might need to make a change because what you don't realize is that those tablets and capsules actually have a lot of fillers and just fake stuff that makes it really hard for your body to absorb the nutrients that you're trying to get out of your multivitamin. That's why I like healthy cell. It's a lot easier to take than your normal multivitamin. It tastes really good. It has all natural ingredients, but because it has 165% more absorption because it comes in a gel packet, I know that I am actually getting the stuff that I need from my multivitamin. I don't know about you, but my family and I, we have been sick multiple times this fall. I've got my theories for why so many more people are sick these days than say a couple years ago, but I have been able to recover pretty quickly. And I really think it's because of the healthy cell immunity packets that I have been taking. They just seem to work a lot better than your standard multivitamin. So you should check it out. You can go to healthycell.com slash Allie. That's healthy com. Use code Allie for 20% off your first order. It couldn't hurt to just try this, see if it works better, but it could definitely help you. It could actually be a real game changer in your health. So go to healthycell.com slash Allie. That's healthy, C-E-L-L.com. Use code Allie for 20% off healthycell.com slash Allie. I just want to put a fine point on 
uh, what you're talking about, about the violence and the proximate trauma that these communities are facing. Indian reservations nationwide face violent crime rates more than 2.5 times the national rate. And some reservations face more than 20 times, 20 times the national rate of violence. More than one in three Indian women will be raped in their lifetimes and two in five will face domestic or intimate partner violence. So most people do not know that this is happening. I mean, they have no idea. When I talk to friends in Oklahoma, you look at the crime rates, it's terrible. But if they live out, I mean, they all live outside of these reservations, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, things like that. They don't feel unsafe. They feel like they have a very safe and secure home and they don't even really know. They might live right next to these reservations and they don't know. It's almost like the best kept secret. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things I started thinking about as I was going to these reservations, particularly, I, you know, I remember thinking this while I was in Montana, uh, I was I visited the Crow Reservation there. Um, you know, inner city poverty and dysfunction is something that, um, at least in New York and other cities like that, you know, people at least sort of drive through or see or, you know, even if you're taking the train from Westchester to New York City, you go through the Bronx, like you have some idea of what happens there. Um, But it's very easy to ignore some of these um, rural communities that are just so impoverished, so filled with crime and dysfunction. But the flip side of that, I think, is also important, which is that American Indians are also very isolated. And so they don't often have a sense of the way the rest of the country operates, that this is not the way most Americans live. Um, This is not the education system most Americans have. Most Americans go to work every day. I mean, if you're a child growing up on the Pine Ridge Reservation, the likelihood is that there's no adult in your life who has a steady job. Wow. And so what what are the chances that you will look around and think there could be something better for me? And so I just, you know, I just want to make the point that the isolation kind of goes both ways. It's in terms of the way we ignore the problems, but it also makes it much more difficult for American Indians to pull themselves out of any of this. Um, One one kind of inspirational story. I mean, uh, there there has been talk about trying to open um, some of the high performing charter schools near Indian reservations. And um, uh, there was one charter school group that actually flew a few uh, adults on the Pine Ridge Reservation out to Denver to see some of the charter schools there and how well they were doing. And I interviewed some of the folks who went on that trip and they were just aghast. They could not believe that there were kids in Denver who come from poor families, some of whom you know don't even hear English at home. And they were able to achieve these extraordinary academic results because these Indians had been told by their leaders for so long that it was impossible for them to get these results, that it was just it was poverty that was keeping them down, that it was a lack of money and resources. And when they understood that other models were possible and that there are ways of teaching poor children from, you know, difficult upbringings and broken families um, how to teach them to successfully, um, they thought, well, why can't we have that? And I think, um, you know, fixing these problems is going to take a lot of that attitude, a lot of a sense of what what else is possible for us. Yeah, that is inspiring. And I hope that that leads people down a path of difference making. Um, 
Because, I mean, it could just giving the opportunities to people that they have always been told that they can't have or maybe that if they took those opportunities that they're abandoning their culture. I think there's a lot of emotional manipulation there, too. One thing I wanted to talk to you about before we kind of close out, I do want to hear a little bit more about what we can do and what we should know about this. But um, you wrote a new forward to your book after COVID. And you just point out using statistics that things really have only gotten worse during COVID. COVID. Um, Were these reservations, I mean, were they under the same kind of lockdowns and things like that? I mean, what caused some of these disparities to widen during the COVID era? So one of the biggest uh, reasons for the difficulties that these reservations experienced was that um, the, the health system on Indian reservations is called the Indian Health Service. It is a federally run health program. And if you ever wanted to know why we should not let the federal government run healthcare yeah. in this country, go visit an Indian reservation. Um, they are um, they're terribly run and managed. Um, again, mm. you see uh, instances of doctors and, and nurses engaged in abuse. The Wall Street Journal did a whole expose with PBS um, in the last few years about moving around how, you know, just different doctors who they knew were engaged in horrible behavior were moved from one clinic to another. Um, there, you know, some of these places don't even have computerized records. Um, and again, by the way, it is not because we do not give enough money to the Indian Health Service. It's just, it's it's terribly run. And, uh, and so the outcome, the health outcomes on these reservations um, are, are in part because of that. Um, it, and in part because of all of the other, you know, co-occurring, uh, you know, illnesses and health out, and health problems that American Indians have, which you also saw in poor communities in America, you know, high rates of obesity, high rates of substance abuse, um, you know, uh, diabetes, heart problems, all those things that made COVID much worse, combined with a health system um, that didn't know how to adequately serve these people, I think made that much, much worse. The The lockdown issue was kind of less of an issue, in part because these are very rural communities, um, but really just because the health outcomes start in such a bad place to begin with, COVID made it much worse. Okay, last sponsor for the day. Over 31,000 businesses have the confidence and clarity they need because they rely on NetSuite by Oracle, the number one cloud financial system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, and budgeting so you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need all in one place. So how do you prepare for the future? How do you make sure that your business, your finances are secure? The answer is NetSuite. NetSuite helps you identify rising costs, automate your business processes, and easily see where to save money. That's why 93% of customers say they improved their visibility and control when they upgraded to NetSuite. What are you waiting for right now? NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. So head to head to netsuite.com slash alley right now. Netsuite.com slash alley. That's netsuite.com slash alley. Wow, so many people don't know anything about this. I really didn't. I'm thankful for your work on it. I think a lot of people just don't say anything because well, one, we don't really know, but also we are either consciously or not um, 
I mean, we're kind of pummeled into silence by saying, you know, you don't understand. And even kind of given this romantic history of indigenous life in the United States, that there are indigenous ways of knowing, there are indigenous ways of education, there are indigenous ways of doing, and all we can do is honor those. And any kind of interference by state law enforcement is seen as just, you know, reactivated trauma or oppression or white supremacy. So I think some of us have even like imbibed those narratives without realizing it. But what should we what should we be doing as people who are aware that, wow, there are a lot of women and children who are subjects of violence, victims of violence with impunity? Is there anything that we can do, especially now that the Supreme Court has ruled that basically they can commit these acts of violence and state law enforcement can do nothing? Yeah, so I just I want to emphasize your point that we have a, a vast misunderstanding in this country about what American Indians mean. Like there's this there is this myth out there that they're the original environmentalist socialists. Yes, and you know, and if peaceful, you talk to yeah. American Indian leaders, they're like, you know, we are just we are like any other people. We many of them like have long records of property rights before um, white people came here. So it's not like they were, you know, oh, we're just, we all just all share. Tribes were of course warring against each other before we got here. They're American Indians are just like other Americans. And, and the idea that somehow, you know, they, they love the environment more than we do and they share and care and are collective more than we are, I think is just this myth that really was propagated a lot in the 1960s and 70s and kind of took hold. Um, in terms of what we can do, um, I think it's, it's very hard to come up with positive solutions for this. I mean, I, I think from a legal perspective, we should be exploring ways to give more Native Americans property rights. We should be interfering less in their economic development. I mean, first of all, you know, a lot of these reservations, when Indians were first pushed onto them, were kind of worthless pieces of land. Now, of course, we've discovered the level of natural resources, of oil, of, of, of fracking that can go on on these reservations. And we should be opening these things up instead of blocking pipelines because some leader says, like, Oh, you might come within a hundred miles of, you know, my ancestors' burial yeah, ground. Right. Um, it's just hurting Indians today. So, getting the federal government out of the business of micromanaging American Indians, I think, is very important. Um, in terms of education, I would love to see more competition, changing charter school laws. Um, you know, if you're an American and you want want to, you know, want to help, want to give a small donation. You know, there are some some Catholic schools like Red Cloud, which is on the Pine Ridge Reservation, which actually try to educate these kids and I think do an enormous job and they're entirely privately funded or funded by the church. Um, So I think, you know, that's sort of one small way you can try to ensure that um, there is some good education going on in these places. You know, the laws, it's it's very hard to change the laws that protect American Indians. and, you know, it, 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 it concerns me that more Americans don't understand the McGirt decision and they don't understand the fight over the Indian Child Welfare Act because, you know, th- those are not only are those important decisions for protecting American Indians, but there are left wing activists who want to use those kinds of things to change the entire legal system. Like there are people who want an Indian Child Welfare Act for black children. So that we can treat black children differently than everyone else. Um, again, it's prioritizing sensitivity over child safety. 
Yeah. And wow, we could have a whole other extended conversation about that. I know that the term critical race theory can be, or some people think it's overused or misapplied, but that really is this ideology that in order to make up for what is perceived as past racism or discrimination or real past racism or discrimination, you have to then kind of, uh, you have to do the same thing today, but in a different direction. You have to make up for that today with present discrimination going the other way. So because they would say black and indigenous families were broken apart by the white man, well, now we have to uh, rewrite the law so it goes a different direction so that you cannot adopt them and you cannot punish them for crimes as if that's going to help anyone. Um, And wow, there seems to be a lot of intersection, by the way, between your most recent book about you know, no way to That's treat a child. That's how I got started on the most recent book. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's just so much corruption at the expense of the most vulnerable in our society. Yeah. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for the work that you do on that. I really, really appreciate it. Everyone can go out and buy both of your books. Highly recommend anywhere books are sold and where can they follow you and all that good stuff. Um, so, yeah, the books are The New Trail of Tears and No yes. Way to Treat a Child. And the, they can follow me on Twitter at Naomi S. Riley um, and get all of the stuff um, at the American Enterprise Institute, which is where I am based. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Naomi. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.